This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. All right, guys, sorry for the little bit of lag time, uh, but welcome to our Friday night lectures. We just have a couple more this winter. Um, next week, we are going to hear from my colleague Joshua on the Apostle Paul, a friend of slaves. Uh, I think, or the enslaved. I forget what I called it. Okay. So, well, on Philemon, mostly. On Philemon, okay. But it's part of a series of lectures on Paul, and they've been great. Definitely recommend that you come and and hear that, especially if you have particular questions about Paul. You'll learn some good stuff, no doubt. But for tonight, we are talking about beauty, specifically through a particular story in all four Gospels. When God created this wild and wonderful cosmos, Genesis 1 tells us seven times that with each new part, he saw that it was good. People often misquote it, saying God said that it was good, but that's not actually what the scriptures say. It says he saw that it was good. And seven times we're told this. I'm sure you're aware of the significance of this number seven, It denotes a completeness, a wholeness, a dynamic fullness, as N.T. Wright puts it. God saw that the light was good. And God saw that it 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 was good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This word, good, as it's translated in English, is the Hebrew word tov. And if you, like me, don't know very much Hebrew at all, you might still know this word. Sometimes pronounced tov, as in a blessing on your head, mazel, mazel, exactly, thank you. This little word, tov, can also be translated as beautiful. I recently heard a talk by Kurt Thompson, and he was highlighting this, that God saw the beauty of his creation, and I was excited to hear him, him talk on it as I'd already written this part of the lecture. So God saw his creation in parts and in the whole as beautiful. This word tov can be and is defined as pleasant, agreeable to the senses, to the sight, to the taste, to the smell. 
The Nicot uh, commentary on Genesis. I love how Victor Hamilton translates it. He simply says, God saw how beautiful it was. Over and over again, those seven times. God saw how beautiful it was, all that he had made. In English, we tend to use this word beauty uh, in a very similar way, as in pleasing or agreeable to the senses, especially the sense of sight. We talk about a beautiful baby, what a beautiful painting, a beautifully arranged room. But our use of this word extends to other senses, too, when someone might mention a song being beautiful, the sense of hearing. What a beautiful meal, which I would say involves all of the senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound. Some of you know one of my favorite sounds of all time that I have yet to discover on this good planet is the sound of a particular sourdough bread recipe when it comes hot out of the oven and the air is trying to escape and it crackles. And my friend Amelia taught me to put salt on the crust of this bread and the salt jumps as it crackles. It's a wonderful sound. And if you remember Ratatouille, the female French chef talks about how you do not judge the goodness of bread by its taste as much as by its sound. And she crunches that baguette. I love that part. So beauty, we use it to mean engaging or delighting our senses. This is how we use the word. And I wanted to explore how Tov um, really speaks to our senses. And I was very excited to see this article by J.I. Packer in which he says this about Tov. It's in our new Bible dictionary here in the library. Tov signifies primarily that which gratifies the senses and derivatively that which gives aesthetic or moral satisfaction. And then again, in Scott McKnight's new book, Church Called Tov, he says, Tov is God's artistic evaluation of all he did. Tov is about beauty, aesthetics, excellence, and what pleases our senses of sight and sound. So Tov is about our senses, but Tov is an expansive word, too. It's a little word, three little letters, but it is rich, it is robust. It cannot be reduced to some sort of eye candy. It denotes things the way they're supposed to be. Each part fulfilling its role in the good order of creation. Things excellent, things flourishing. This is Tov. And this was creation at the start, a dynamic fullness of goodness and sensory beauty from God's own hand. And God saw that it was beautiful. Fast forward a contested amount of years, thousands and thousands of years, and all four Gospels record an event where a woman pours oil onto Jesus of Nazareth. It's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, and John 12. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls what this woman does a beautiful thing. Both the NIV and the ESV translated this Greek word here, was translated beautiful, 
The word is kalos, kalos. Anybody know how to tell me how to pronounce that better? Anyway, that's the Greek word, kalos. So the NIV and the ESV translated it as beautiful. Here in Matthew and Mark, in this story about this woman, and in only two other places is it translated as beautiful. We're going to look at those. They are not particularly positive uses of this word. The first is a little earlier in Matthew, when Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful, kalos, on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And the one other time it's translated as beautiful is in Luke. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, kalos stones, and with gifts dedicated to God. But look at Jesus' response. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So those are the only other two times it's translated as beautiful. The word is used a ton in the New Testament, but it's pretty much always translated as good or a comparative word like better or best. So the story of the woman anointing Jesus in Matthew and Mark, this is the only positive use of this word. Sorry, I went a little fast there. I wish I knew more about why they chose beauty instead of good in this story. But one clue is at least what we heard earlier about tov. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, this same word, kalos, was used in Genesis 1, where the word tov is in Hebrew. So God saw all that he had made. He saw that it was beautiful. He saw that it was kalos. He saw that it was tov. Just taking me right through them all again. God saw that it was kalos. Here in our story tonight, in the four gospel accounts, we will see Jesus again seeing something beautiful. So why does he call this woman's act a beautiful thing? When I say act, which I'm probably going to say throughout this lecture, I'm not saying it's like a performance or it's somehow fake. I'm just talking about her action. Why did she... Why is this thing that she enacted a beautiful thing? Jesus could have said, she has done a bold thing to me, or she has done a memorable thing to me, or she has done a creative thing to me. So why beautiful? I have been drawn to this story for some time because I'm curious about beauty. In my early 20s, I actually went to a Francis Schaeffer Institute lecture at Covenant Seminary and heard a woman named Marcina Conkle speak on beauty and body image. And that talk was huge for me. It was so helpful. It was healing. It kind of set me on a journey that in many ways I'm still on, wondering about beauty, trying to pay some attention to our cultural concepts of beauty. And as a woman, trying to resist the constant pressure to conform to a particular vision of what is beautiful, a particular vision that says, 
I must get thinner. I must manipulate my face and my hair to look a particular way. I need bigger eyes, fuller lips, higher cheekbones, no blemishes, no wrinkles, no dark circles. And if you've had a baby, your body should never look like you've had a baby. <laughs> this is, you know, just a fraction of the messages constantly coming at us all, really. It's not like it's just women anymore. And the message is, even with all of this, you might attain beauty <laughs> if you work on all of those things. The beauty industry is off the charts, <laughs> except not because it's being charted. And I have some statistics for you um, to share with you. American women spend a monthly average of $313 on their appearance, which might not sound like that much. I don't know how you budget or how that hits you, but it hits me when the rest of the stat says, that means on average an American woman spends $225,000 on her beauty in her lifetime. The global fragrance market, which I thought was a great stat for this talk because we're going to be talking about perfume. The global fragrance market is expected to reach an astonishing $91.17 billion by 2025. Avon has this great stat that says every 15 seconds, one Avon lipstick is sold in the U.S., and this is a slightly different angle. 120 billion cosmetic packagings are produced every year. I'm just talking about the plastic packagings for mostly single-use cosmetics. 70% of carbon emissions could be eliminated with refillable cosmetic containers. If we just used refillable cosmetic containers. That was convicting to me. I've bought some single-use cosmetics for sure. The global beauty industry is expected to reach a value of $863 billion by 2024. And a lot of that, from what I've read, is connected to Instagram. Big surprise there. There is a whole world on Instagram called beauty Instagrammers. I didn't even know that that was a category. But it's essentially, um, um, what's the word, brands? And experts, people who make videos of themselves opening their beauty products and maybe putting them on or giving tutorials, showing different ways of using them, as well as consumers. And Instagram touts that beauty Instagrammers are active on Instagram every day, averaging 33 interactions with the app per day. That seems like a lot. I can't imagine doing 33 anything on a daily basis. My point is very simple with those few stats about the beauty industry. Many, many millions of humans made in God's image, living their one precious life, they are asking, what is beautiful? Can I be beautiful? And then there's a smaller fraction of people asking, how can I make money on all the people asking these questions about beauty? So as a Christian, you know, I'm still asking these questions. What is beautiful? Can I be beautiful? I want to know more about beauty. I want to be beautiful. I want my life to be beautiful. I want my eyes to be 
attuned to seeing beauty when I really encounter it. I want my lips to be able to name it. And I want my hands to add to it. In Elaine Scarry's excellent, or Scarry's excellent little book um, on beauty and being just, which I'm going to reference quite a few times, she says, intrinsic to our longings for beauty is the desire to replicate, to make more of it. She says, this is a quote, beautiful things have a forward momentum. The way they incite the desire to bring new things into the world, such as infants, epics, sonnets, drawings, dances, laws, philosophic dialogues, theological tracts. I love that that's the final thing she names in her list of beauty, theological tracts. So we long to not only know it when we see it and be a part of it, but to replicate it. So if Jesus calls something beautiful, I'm paying close attention. That's what I want to do tonight, essentially, pay close attention to why Jesus calls something beautiful. I have seven ideas of why this is a beautiful thing. This is not exhaustive, for sure, but they seem clear enough in the narrative, and I wanted to just mirror those seven toves of creation. Jesus, of course, doesn't say that it's beautiful seven times, I'm just exploring different, hopefully faithful, angles in the narrative. This might be a bit of a tired image, but if we could together imagine the act of this woman that we're going to hear a lot about, if we could imagine it as a large diamond, we're holding it, we're turning it, we're paying attention to its facets, saying, wow, look at it from this angle, look at it from here. Do that together. Let's start with Matthew and Mark. The versions of the story of the woman anointing Jesus in Matthew and Mark are almost identical. It says, A woman came to Jesus while he was staying in Bethany, and he's at a dinner party. She breaks an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' head. Some men present at the meal respond indignantly. They mention how much this oil or perfume was worth. The poor are mentioned. They rebuke the woman harshly. Jesus then rebukes them and praises her, praises what she has done. That's just a quick summary of how it's told in Matthew and Mark. Let's look at Luke. In Luke's version... Jesus is dining at a Pharisee's house, and it says a woman who lived a sinful life comes. This seems to be a euphemism for being a prostitute. Again, there's an alabaster jar of perfume, but she pours it on Jesus' feet, it says in Luke. She's described here as weeping, her tears wet his feet, she kisses his feet, pours the perfume on them, and wipes them with her hair can see it's quite distinct from the Matthew and Mark version. And then Jesus has a back and forth with Simon, tells him a parable about people owing money to a money lender, and he asks if both are forgiven, who will love the money lender more? And then he turns and says, skip that part.
Do you see this woman? He asked Simon. Do you see this woman? I love that. It brings Genesis 1 to my mind. God sees. God is paying attention, and here he yet again sees something beautiful. In this lecture, I essentially want us to hear Jesus asking us, do we see this woman with an alabaster jar approaching Jesus, who is called the Messiah, which means the one anointed with oil? Do we see her? She is rebuked in this narrative as well. A couple bullet points up. Silently rebuked. And then Jesus praises her hugely in Luke's version. I want to read you just a little bit from Luke 7. This is Jesus speaking. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But for but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then he goes on to tell her, her sins are forgiven, and that's pretty much the end of that one in Luke. Lastly, let's look at John. In John 12. Again, takes place in Bethany. The woman is named in John. She's named as Mary, as in Mary of Martha and Lazarus, sibling group. And the amount of perfume is given, a pint, a half a liter, and it is called pure nard, an expensive perfume. Thick, highly potent essential oil. She pours it on his feet in this one. She wipes his feet with her hair, again, in this one. And of course, again, objections are raised about the cost of the perfume. The poor are brought up again. Judas is actually named, in particular, as the objector. Jesus rebukes him, and Jesus defends Mary. And again, mentions her act as a preparation for his burial. Three of the four versions mention this, that she is preparing his body for burial. So now that we've just had a quick look at all of them, in all four Gospels, you're probably noting some similarities and some differences. There are scholars that conflate the stories and just write about the woman who anoints Jesus. Others think there are distinctives in these accounts that can only add up to multiple instances of this happening. Personally, I love the idea that it happened more than once. (laughs) Maybe the first woman inspired others to do the same to Jesus. One Bible study helps I was looking at said this about the word kalos, this beautiful word. This is the definition, attractively good, good that inspires or motivates others to embrace what is lovely or beautiful or praiseworthy, well done so as to be winsome. I like that as a, as a small case for perhaps it inspired other women to do it, and it was more than one. Mm-hmm. This icon, 
Um, this is an icon by a living iconographer. Her name is Julia Stankova. She's from Bulgaria. And this is just a, a photo version of the real one there that Dave gave me for Christmas. Um, she, I, I love this icon. I love so much of what's captured in it. We've had a really lovely back and forth with her telling us more of the specifics I think she calls these three in the background the witnesses. Is that right? And I love how it suggests just a little bit. Yes, there's some ridicule. There's some condemning, especially in like the first character. But I'd say there's some curiosity there as well. Maybe even the hope of being possibly inspired to do something similar for Jesus. So this picture also inspires me to imagine it happened more than once. So whether one woman did this to Jesus or multiple women did this to Jesus, listen to what he says. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Her actions are highly praised by Jesus, inextricably tied to the gospel going out into the world. And according to Jesus, her actions are beautiful. So let's look at these seven facets of this beautiful thing. First of all, it is beautiful because it's surprising. Again, Elaine Scarry in her book says, beauty is unprecedented. It strikes you. It's fresh. It's not what you expected. And I think this is the obvious first thing in the story. Women were not guests at banquets like this. They might be there to serve, yes. John even clearly states that in his version that Martha is serving. But her presence at this dinner is not the norm. How did she get in there? It's taboo. It is not to protocol. But even more surprising than her presence is that she gets it. She responds to the news of Jesus, that he's dining, you know, nearby at so-and-so's house. She goes to him, and while the host didn't get it, who Jesus was and what he's about, the religious scholars around the table didn't get it. Even the inner circle of Jesus' disciples didn't get it at this point. They critique her, they correct her, and Jesus corrects them all, saying, Do you see this woman? Stop bothering her. Leave her alone. She gets it. N.T. Wright, Lord bless him, writes this about this moment. Here, a woman is getting it right. While all around her, men are getting it wrong. (laughs) This situation here is scandalous. This is societal norms upended. She is not supposed to even be there, and she's certainly not supposed to be teaching these men how to respond to the Messiah. It reminds me of Ruth, honestly. Not only was a Moabitess not supposed to even be there, let alone be marrying the man of noble character in Bethlehem, she's actually (coughs) teaching the whole community what Yahweh is really like, who Yahweh really is by her life, by her actions, by her choices. 
So the first thing is, it's surprising, and that's part of its beauty. Second thing, it is extravagant. I'd say this is the second most obvious part of the story. And I'm trying to actually follow the narrators in these seven, not just pick them out of nowhere. Matthew says it could have been sold at a high price, the perfume. <coughs> Mark says this it was worth more than a year's wages. And John says it was worth a year's wages. This woman gives Jesus what was potentially her most precious, not her leftovers. She pours it all out. This is radical extravagance. And it was offensive to the first audience. And if we're honest, I think many of us would own it's still offensive. A year's wages on perfume poured out at one time. There are people who don't have food. Ricky Watts, in a a class he did on Mark, says he would guess, you know, in our day, this is like an $80,000 bottle of perfume. So what she does is costly. And this extravagance is appropriate for Jesus, and it is beautiful to Jesus. Number three, it is beautiful because it's sensory you don't often just let sensory hang out like that people say like a sensory experience but i'm just giving you one adjective it is sensory this goes back to what we've already heard about tove again scott mcknight it's visually pleasing and pleasant it is what is desirable what is of high quality and what is excellent no doubt this act not only engaged but probably overwhelmed everybody's senses. As every middle schooler has to learn, you are not meant to wear the whole bottle of perfume at once. John wrote, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just imagine half a liter of essential oil poured on the body of one person. That would be potent. No one would soon forget this. In Luke's version, the sensory experience, even outside the perfume, is especially highlighted. In fact, it's sensual. There's Jesus, and there's a woman. So our main characters are a man and a woman. We're given this euphemism for prostitution right at the beginning, so we have kind of sex on the mind as we start reading Luke's version. We hear about his feet, letting down her hair, reclining her tears. She's kissing his feet. She's wiping his feet, pouring perfume on his feet. One of the Pharisees present says to himself, if he knew who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, The whole story is very bodily. It's very sensual, but remarkably not sexual. And I think Luke could be making a point here. Jesus is different. Jesus is not like her clientele. He doesn't reduce her to her body and what it can do. He doesn't reduce her to her gender, doesn't objectify her. This also reminds me of Ruth. (laughs) Because similarly, when we finally get to the 
threshing floor, there's been so much buildup. There's a man, there's a woman, she's changed her clothes, she's put on her makeup, she puts on perfume, he's had a bit to drink, it's just the two of them, there's a floor, they're lying down, there's some uncovering. The whole story just leads you to believe they're definitely about to have sex. And plenty of commentators think that is what happens, but I, and I'm not alone in this, am convinced that part of what's going on there is to set us up to then be told, no, of course not. Haven't you been reading the whole story? This is a woman of noble character. This is a man of noble character. That's not to say sexuality isn't beautiful, because they do get married and have a baby, by the way. But it's like we're set up to think this is definitely where the story's headed both in Ruth and, I think, in this story. And then, no. This scene, ending in sex, is not the end-all, be-all. There's something better than sex going on here. Sex is good and beautiful, yes, but not between Jesus and this woman. Sex is not what this moment is about. Which leads us to the next one. It's beautiful because it was risky. It risked, this action of hers risked being misunderstood, even ridiculed. It took courage, it took vulnerability, seemed like a waste to everyone else. The authorities of the faith considered her behavior to be excessive, but she cared much more for how Jesus would receive this, how he would interpret it. And that is beautiful. Number five. Her act is beautiful because it is prophetic. This woman is playing the part of a prophet Not just in doing something kind of odd, because prophets were kind of known for that, but she is anointing the king with oil. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. And she's doing it right before his strange coronation, where he would be crowned. He would open wide his arms for his people. He would be lifted high. Jesus' reign was about to begin in a new way, and she sets him apart by anointing him. She is like a prophet in this scene. She's also, remarkably, enacting God's next move before he does it, which is also common in the Old Testament prophets. Like the prophet Hosea, who marries an adulterous woman, has sons with her. The first two are named Jezreel and Lo-Ru-Hama, and they're named this because they are their phrases or words that are telling the nation what he's about to do. Their names revealed what God was very soon to do. And Hosea was enacting it with his life, with his body. Or the prophet Ezekiel, whom God told to do lots of strange things, one of which was to draw Jerusalem on a block of clay and build miniature ramps and battering rams and siege works, and then lie down next to it with his back to it, to enact with his body God's posture towards Jerusalem, and to reveal what he was about to do to Jerusalem. 
Similarly, this woman, she enacts what God was about to do. This woman takes what was probably her most costly, most precious possession, and she breaks it, and she pours it out for another. Broken and poured out, exactly the language that the New Testament would eventually use to describe what Jesus is about to do. He will soon be broken, be poured out, be emptied. Jesus also explains something of what she's doing. In multiple accounts, he says, she's preparing my body for burial. This was a common practice at the time. One source I read called it the last act of affection, to touch the body of a loved one, the dead body of a loved one, so that's pretty distinct from what we're seeing here, to rub costly oil or perfume on their body. It was also practical. It hid the stench of death for a time. This woman is announcing Jesus' coming death with her actions. She is saying, with what she does, the stench of death is coming soon to this man, Jesus. Have you ever imagined Jesus whipped, crowned, stripped down, carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, up the hill to Golgotha, with the scent of this expensive perfume still on his skin? One commentator I read said, extravagant perfume bookends the life of Jesus from the beginning to the end. Frankincense and myrrh from the wise men at his birth and this pure nard from this woman before his death. I like to think of it as an extra blessing on the human sense of smell. It's very important to Jesus, obviously. Just two more facets to why I'm convinced this is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful because it's an act of devotion. Another way of saying it's a very loving or loyal thing. This word devotion has fallen on hard times in some Christian circles, maybe more in evangelical ones. But I still love this word. I still think it can have a good life. This woman is doing a form of her devotions, we might say. In Luke, Jesus says she's done what she's done for him out of great love. We don't know how much she realized about this prophetic act, but she knew enough to give of herself with reckless abandon, really. She poured it all out. Her time with Jesus was limited, and she did what she could it says in Mark. Honestly, I'm still wondering about that phrase. Still wondering what, what it means altogether. She did what she could. It wasn't, I'm convinced, a kind of half-ass, well, you know, Jesus was here, I just did what I could. Um, I think it gives you more the sense of her at home, hearing Jesus was nearby at a dinner, maybe searching her house frantically for what? What could she go to him with? What could she give him? What could she offer to him? 
and then her eyes land on that alabaster jar. Jews were commanded to devote things to the temple, to God, really. Uh, These things were offerings dedicated to holy use. In fact, it's mentioned in that passage from Luke I read earlier about the beautiful stones of the temple. So they were commanded to devote things to God. And here, this woman meets the one who has fulfilled the temple and in whom God's fullness dwells bodily. And she performs a beautiful, sacrificial act of devotion. Finally, it's beautiful because it's lasting. This is not intuitive. Because it is the nature of perfume, of course, to dissipate. It fades. It's gone. This is a very temporal act of devotion, we might say. It's strong at first, no doubt, but not for long. And yet, Jesus tells her, and tells his disciples, tells everyone else at the dinner, tells us, tells those who have corrected her and rebuked her, those who had other plans for what she should do with her expensive perfume. He says, what she has done... It's going to last. I'm going to make it last through the retelling of this story throughout the whole world, wherever the gospel goes, he says. What she's done will also be told. Because Jesus seeks out what slips away, what dissipates. He can make things last. Again, Elaine Scary. Though human beings have created much of the beauty of the world, they are only collaborators in a much vaster project. She goes on to say later that beauty always points beyond itself. This story is a remarkable example of that. Maybe it's even why Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not name this woman. Because what she does points beyond herself to Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. She has done a beautiful thing. Thank you for listening. Now we have a chance to to talk together. I don't have to leave this up. I can also leave this up if you have questions, comments, things you want to add, things that came to mind. Yes, Marty. I'm glad you mentioned the question of... Um is this, is this more than one account, more, more occasion? Because that's what was hitting me right away. I think it has to be because one of the women was described as immoral. Yeah. And the, and Mary of Bethany was not. Yeah. So it has to have been. Yeah. That just struck me as it, I'm so glad you raised it because I was, that was going to ask it. But yeah. you raised it. Yeah. 
There's some strange overlap, though, with, um, like, her hair, wiping his feet with her hair. I read one thing that was, like, anointing someone with oil, pouring oil on someone's head, pretty normal. Wiping wiping their feet with your hair was not normal at all. That was a really unusual thing, but... Yeah, I think they were. Yeah, there were multiple the instances of this. Yep, I'm with you. Hmm. Yes. Oh, sorry. I'm no, I totally I'm blinded there. Larry here. Yep. <laughs> um, I was going to make a comment about the uh, connecting back with. Um, Sarah's lecture on, on paradox mm-hmm. earlier this term, just the, the, the richness of this story and, and the paradoxes of the symbolism of being anointed with oil is both anointing a king who's being enthroned and preparing him for death. Mm, yeah. And how it's all, all at the same time. Hmm. Um, and how somehow that act is a symbol of maybe not even a symbol, but literally, yeah. <laughs> in terms of anointing mm. for death, um, two things that are absolutely diametrically opposed mm. yeah. in terms of people's understanding. Of course, it's communicating what kind of a king this yes. person is and mm. what he's come what he's come to do, but uh, mm. I find that to be really striking, because mm. obviously kingship imagery, but also getting ready to be buried, you know. Yeah. Yeah, this is a bit of a um, a poetic stretch. I'm not saying that this is what's being said here, but as I was looking at, um, you know, that this is like an act of devotion, uh, I was struck by, you know, things being devoted to the temple to be sacred, to be used in worship. It's one way the word is used. But for things to be devoted also meant to be devoted to destruction. And I feel like that word even holds both of those things Mm -hmm. you're you're mentioning. Like he's both being set apart for for a sacred task and being destroyed. Yes. Hmm. Yes. It's not a question, but just a remark, but it's, it's... Beauty has always been an incredibly difficult thing to define, uh, except in a very, very personal, maybe even isolating way because it's so individual. But it's interesting here to, just to look at what you've looked at, to see what Jesus thinks is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's, with Kalos, obviously it's very closely tied to moral excellence. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but it's interesting the other a- aspects that you've that you've laid out. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge, I yeah. think, to to see what to to expand beautiful. Yeah. To expand beauty in our minds and in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. In um, this great book that Ben loaned me, actually called "The Beauty of God," it's, it goes in different directions than than I was going here. But uh, one of the essays talks a lot about like the only way to keep a Christian notion of beauty away from sentimentality or just a matter of taste is for it to be really located in the self-revelation of God in Christ and especially in his sacrificial act. And I was like, well, that that is exactly what this does. This locates beauty at the point where she's saying, you're about to die. 
you know, the center of the story is basically her naming, his death is coming, and all that that means. Um, so that I feel like that kind of reigns beauty into its real center, um, or keeps it in its center, where it can, you're right, just become so vague, so elusive, so driven by personal taste. Yes? Uh, in the, I don't know which gospel or all the gospels, had Jesus already told his disciples that he was going to die? And would this, mm-hmm. could she have heard Douglas in response to that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Yes. By, yeah, by 7, by John 7, or Luke 7, rather. No, I believed her. Yeah. Believed him. Believed him. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, the only one to get the like message. She's the only one that understood. Wherever she got it. Yeah. Somehow. That's a great question. I don't know. I, I was actually wondering that today myself, but I did not go look it up. I think he had. I wonder oh, yeah. if he'd he already he told everyone for oh, sure. Several yeah. times. At that yeah, point. There you had. go. Which is why it's so amazing that she's the, it's a woman is the only one who's not theologically trained. Yeah. The only one that got it. Yeah. Peter says, you know, God forbid, Lord, when he tells him he's going to die. Say, yeah. No, no way. God forbid, Lord. Yeah. She weeps. Yeah. She gives him the most precious thing she probably ever owned. <laughs> she recognizes this moment in a way that mm-hmm. seems like no one else is. Another question back behind yeah. the Yep. <laughs> what, what do we? Um, what do you make of the the, the tears? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, mean, I assume if it was not common for someone to wash someone's feet with their hair, it was also not common to use tears. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and enough tears uh, to actually like yeah, yeah. substantiate mm. washing his feet. But uh, you, you can imagine, you can imagine these are tears of mourning his coming death, but also maybe tears of of gratitude, like mm-hmm. for what he's done for her, which yeah. is, or will do. Will um, do, yeah. I don't know. Just what, what you what do you make of the? Mm. I forget whether all the accounts talk about the tears or not. It's Luke. It's just Luke who who I think might be the only one that mentions tears. Um, mm. I can't say that for sure right now, but yeah, it seems like it's pretty tied up in her personal story. Um, I mean, I wonder. I have wondered, like, what were they talking about at the table mm. that she perhaps heard and mm. responded to? Uh, with tears and a sense of her own unworthiness or uncleanness before him. And yet also in Luke, it's where Jesus says what she's done, she did with great love. So somehow she already loved Jesus. She already knew enough and had seen enough and tasted enough of who he is, who he was, what he was about to do, what he'd already done, uh, that she was obviously deeply moved. And the parable he tells seems to suggest that she knows she's forgiven yeah. by yeah. him, right? And that she had a whole lot to be forgiven yeah, yeah, yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, definitely. He's yeah. like, so, hmm, who do you think would love? Because I think it's funny to ask who would love the money lender. Right. Like, are you right, going right. to love your money lender? <laughs> uh, maybe if they forgive a huge debt. But, yeah, you're right. It obviously implies mm-hmm. she had a lot. Clint, who 
is here. Oh, hey, Clint. Oh, it's great to have you. And he said, I'm wondering about the word passion. Would Jesus say passion was beautiful? Hmm. And he has, it's from my notes last week, I noted that degree of passion was not the issue, but quality of passion, good or bad. I'm not sure what he means by that, but does God endorse passion? Hmm. I guess mostly, would Jesus say passion was beautiful? I sure think so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of course, passion makes me think of his passion, which this story is kind of anticipate, not kind of, she's absolutely anticipating his passion, his suffering. Um, yeah, it, it's probably, I would want to be careful to not be like, suffering is beautiful. Um, the passion of Christ was uniquely beautiful because of who he was and what it meant for the world. Do you think by passion he just means like intense energy and excitement about something? I don't yeah, I mean there's an intensity about her for sure. Uh, it is, yeah, called into question, called excessive, you know, grossly misinterpreted. So yeah, I'd say there was an intensity, a passion about what she did. Yeah. Yes. I'm just wondering, do you have any ideas on how this beautiful thing she did could apply to us today in um, it's such a unique situation? Mm-hmm. It was Jesus before he was dying. Yeah. And yet, it's clearly meant to teach us something. Yeah. I When I try to put myself in her shoes, I can't imagine caring so little of what everybody else thought of me, mm. caring so much of Jesus that I cared so little mm-hmm. of my reputation. <laughs> and so I just wonder if you or anyone has ideas of how how this... Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's tricky even to ask it in a way because if it's too self... I mean, it was obviously something very genuine and spontaneous with her, so yeah. not calculated. Yeah. So when I ask the question, how can this apply, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. You know, it should just be something that just comes upon me. Right. And gives me a freedom from, you know, a surprising freedom from giving a darn what anybody <laughs> thinks, you know, when I yeah. most of the time care way too much, right? you know? Yeah, yep, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I wanted to let these seven kind of be in relationship with each other in ways that might give room for all kinds of things mm-hmm. could be beautiful yeah. in this kind of... I want to call it like a rubric, but with these clues. Um, And I feel like they kind of help each other, too. You know, like if we just say beauty is all things extravagant, you know, we need we need other things there in relationship with it. So I like the the relationship, the tension between them all. And I thought it did more opening up as far as like how many different acts or ways or um, tasks or ways of living could fit within this. Um, rather than saying, like, here's exactly mm-hmm. what beautiful living, beautiful doing, beautiful mm-hmm. life would be like. So, other people have thoughts on... Yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky because our, most of our, or depending on what sort of churches we're involved in, <laughs> most of our experience of worship is unbelievably scripted. Mm. You know, <laughs> we went to a congregational church where at one time, the whole thing came to a screeching halt, because a woman in the congregation, can I suggest a hymn? 
And the pastor said, oh, well, I guess, I, I guess we could do that. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, you know. And it just, just made me think how utterly ridiculous this is. Mm. It, it's so scripted. It's so fixed. It's so, and obviously, uh, that's not all churches. Our churches are very, a lot more, uh, room for improvisation yeah. on the part of anybody. But, but, uh, this is certainly unscripted. Yeah. It certainly it means that we need to, and is worship. Yes. So it may mean that we need to have our worship informed by it somehow. Yeah. Not quite sure how. Yeah. Essential oils in church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to like douse this room yeah. or something. That was my idea earlier, and then I was like, someone might be allergic to that. I, well, I won't it's, do that. It's, it's interesting that the black church, I mean, our church, the pastor is very interesting. I mean, there's a certain order, to, but he's always breaking it. Yeah. Not ever, but he's always jimmying it around and doing something that catches people off guard. Or, yeah. So, what so. I was going to say, that the congregation is much greater freedom in our church. Yeah. In a black congregation, there's much yeah. more freedom of expression and of dancing and of moving. And yeah. You know, people are not standing <clears throat> stock still like statues when they're singing. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Moving. And if someone ask, could we do this, that wouldn't freak everybody out. Mm-hmm. And when somebody is, say, singing a solo and and is, you know, make, makes a mistake or forgets their part or just starts to feel nervous, the whole congregation will say at once, that's all right, take your time, take your time, that's all right. That's never, never happened in, in any white church I've, <laughs> I've been in. It's just very affirming and comforting. That's yeah. okay. And spontaneous. And spontaneous, and, yeah. That's mainly for kids. Yeah. Kids that screw up, where <laughs> I do love that about this story, though. It feels like it's odd, and it is speaking to what's coming, but it's like just what came to mind in the moment, in a way, too. That is beautiful. Um, yes, sorry. So this was on, these four readings were on my Lenten reading this week. Oh. Um, on stinginess. Mm. And mm. what we I like to think it's like an heirloom. She inherited it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is there a dowry component to it all? Good question, yeah. No, I didn't come across that. What if there was even the 
what she had gotten from the work that she had done, she knew she was very successful. So maybe it was like a huge flip of that as well. Maybe Dave actually has, um, he was telling me today, some really cool thoughts about the Luke version when she kind of seems like a prostitute for the phrase, she did what she could. It's kind of like she brought her body, she brought the tools of her trade and gave them all to Jesus, but that there they were completely redeemed and um, given a whole new meaning and actually... Like it becomes that she's like a prophet. Are you kidding me? It's like a crazy upending of her work in her life. Yeah, but what Nikki said is so striking too that the reference to Judas, because Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Just even the kiss again. Like the woman. I did not make that connection. Yep. The woman. Of course. Kissing. Of course. Yeah. I see. And Judas kissing him in betrayal. But still, but smelling, being reminded. Oh man! And in John, it's Judas so who's like, yeah. who's like, this money could have been used. Yeah. But it says, says John's it like, because he, he used to purse. help himself. Yeah. He kept the purse. purse. And he wanted to steal it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, exactly. So that's exactly. <coughs> yeah. Who knows where he got those thirty pieces of silver? <coughs> just a really brief thought, but just thinking about that redemption and then Ruth being Moabitess yeah. and then a mother of Yes. Um, how the beginning can look the beginning of someone uh, looks impossible. What's the use of this for the good of the world? Um, sometimes those are the people that just bring you Yep. That's good. That's lovely. Yeah, Nate. Um, I think the two examples that stuck out to me was God creating the earth and beginning of Genesis, how that's like opportunity for his people to worship him. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I still have questions about the extravagance, and like we were talking about this earlier in this story. Um, I at least think that extravagance has its place, <laughs> and some of us are more tempted than others to think it can't have a place when there are still poor among us. And um, yeah, it's a. It's not like it was a self-indulgent extravagance. It was very particularly offered to God, offered to the Son of God, um, in a, like Marty was saying, a very particular moment. 
Um, so it wasn't as if it was just a blanket, like, extravagance is the best. Jesus loves extravagance at the cost of whatever. Um, and even the fact that the poor are brought up, it's not brought up very well, but it still is kind of giving this nod to Jesus and his group were supposed to care for the poor, and they knew it, and it was a priority. And this called that into question. So there's some kind of acknowledgement of that as a priority, but obviously making room for acts of extravagance that look excessive, look ridiculous, may even look dead wrong to some people that God finds beautiful. And I also wanted these other ones to kind of tug on each other. So it's like extravagance alone, like I said earlier, not the way. But when it's tempered by devotion, you know, by... God's own guidance, like this kind of prophetic guidance I think she was mm-hmm. operating in, those can bring extravagant in, extravagance into a right place. I don't know that I've like exactly tasted that in my own life, um, but I want to. I mean, this story gives a sense that, yeah, there is extravagance that Jesus delights in and that I, I want to offer him like she did. That's just kind of some rambly thoughts in response. But do you have more to say there? Uh, I, I think about food and like these things that come on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would want it to be more about like leading and obedience, uh, even if there's a real risk of it being. I mean, I think actually our our some of our repulsion to extravagance has more to do with how other people will look at it, mm-hmm. and maybe how God will receive it. Um, so that's probably how I would want to temper it, like make it less about how other people are going to find this and more about, like, well, is this something God could be asking of me or asking me to enjoy? Ben, did you have a response, yeah, too? or just a thought about, about that. I wonder whether this kind of thing is a similar story to when Jesus' followers are, are accused for not fasting and going around with sad faces, and, and, and Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm, they're not fasting because I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'll... they'll There'll be a time to that later when I'm not. But like, if, if I am here, it's appropriate to celebrate, and it's appropriate. I mean, the the, the, the question that, that that I can imagine maybe picking up this story as, as someone who doesn't know anything about Jesus and reading this and, and thinking like, well, this guy is an ego. <laughs> like, he says, yeah, this is appropriate. You know, does someone pour eighty thousand dollars of perfume on my head? And he's like. Yeah, that was awesome. What she just did, like how? <laughs> but but no, the whole point is that it's appropriate to who he is. Yeah, it's him. He's with us. Like he and uh, it, there's you know no amount of extravagance would even be enough to to, to communicate who he is. Yeah, that's good. And so I, I like this idea of Jesus saying, that, you know, there'll be a time for fasting when I'm no longer with you, <laughs> but now. 
similar line with Martha and Mary. Yeah. Okay. Martha was doing the dutiful, like, that's what you do when you have guests. Mm-hmm. And he was telling just to do this kind of extravagant thing for the woman host. Just sit down and listen. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same no, Mary. Same, yeah. same Mary. She, same Mary. She's always doing weird things for Jesus. <laughs> I love it. She pushes weird on her. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's often kind of putting her place in more of a, of a man's role in a lot of ways. Like sitting at the feet of a rabbi, taking part in this banquet in a way that Martha's serving, the more appropriate place for a woman to be, but she's getting right in there. <laughs> Yeah, Ben, to your point, in at least three of them, Jesus says, like, I won't always be with you. Yeah. He explicitly names, this is, do you, do you recognize who I am, what this moment is, the opportunity you have to be with me, you know. This is God incarnate we're talking about. Yeah, sorry. Dick. I was just quick. John, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me makes me think that there's, there's got to be a both hand. Yeah. And, and uh, which means the, there is a dividing line between extravagance and but we'll be unto the prison to lay it out for everybody. There you <laughs> go. It's not going to be something that someone can uh, lay out for all humanity. It's an absolute. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder um, like how that relates to what Jesus says. Hey, whatever you do, the least of these you do to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like like in this story, it's directly to Jesus, but you know, his call is for us to be extravagant to each other. And and then we when we do that it's even as unto him. And it reminded me of this story I heard of this couple who uh, they were they got married and they had well they had their wedding and they invited all these homeless people who they and spent time with and ministered to, I guess. And they invited them to their wedding, and they just made the biggest feast, the best feast with the best china for them, you know? And I think it was, it was such a contrast for me. Like, usually the poor kind of get the leftovers, mm-hmm. and we're not extravagant with them. Mm-hmm. And here they were, they were just like, let's let it all out. Let's, let's give them the best we've got. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, maybe if we need something more like that, or... It's like blending extravagance and the poor yeah. in that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, you can't just do that with every poor person in the world. There's too many. But, uh, but yeah, do we just like stretch it out thin so as many people get it, or do we mm. have these moments of extravagance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mrs. Schaefer was pretty good at doing beauty and extravagance without a lot of money. <laughs> We met her in her very, very final years, but yeah, she's in this lecture too, no doubt. She's certainly, her writing has mm-hmm. influenced me as far as what is beautiful and why God delights in beauty and how she to practice it. 
So, since you're a seven. Yeah. <laughs> <Third> points. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <coughs> this is another totally random thing. Yeah. Does, does, do any people can, that you've read conjecture, like, and I'm sure lots of apocryphal stories exist out there, what in the world Mary and Joseph did with the Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I am just become like an heirloom. Like, okay, I guess we're going to carry this around for a while. I've done Egypt. Right, yeah, right, right. Maybe they. Yeah, there's a there's a really lovely like children's book for Christmas that's I think it's called like I don't know what it's called, but it's like narrated by Mary and she's mm-hmm. like showing a grandchild mm-hmm. like these precious things. Mm-hmm. And That, like, well, he was already anointed. But maybe they were inspired into a beautiful thing. Hey, maybe they were like, yes, he was anointed while he was still alive, but not this one. Well, shall we close there? If there's nothing else, thank, thank you guys you very so much. much. Yeah. You're